anyone could start something new at any age and to just not be scared, put fear aside, because once you start on your path, the doors will open up where you least expected it. And that happened to me. That was Deborah Devines. She's the founder of the Indiana Prison Writers Workshop. It's a nonprofit program to help offenders develop their creative writing skills and prepare them to reintegrate back into society after their incarceration. We'll hear more from Deborah Devines on the Hopeful Hoosier podcast, episode 10. I'm Andy Dix. I live in Indianapolis, and it seems that every morning I wake up to read an online headline of yet another murder in the Circle City. It's becoming a daily occurrence. Illegal drug use, gang violence, sex trafficking, assaults, burglaries, carjackings, and other crimes seem to be on the rise all across Indiana. The constant local media blitz is numbing. It's easy to become discouraged and lose hope that our leaders can solve our growing crime problem. Fortunately, our state is blessed with dedicated law enforcement professionals, a solid legal system, and an outstanding group of state employees serving in the correctional system. Yet despite all of these efforts, punishing, rehabilitating, and re-entering offenders back into the neighborhoods as productive members of society is a problem too big for most of us to even consider taking on. Here's the numbers from 2017. Indiana has 18 adult and three juvenile correction facilities. The total number of adults in state correctional facilities in 2017 was 26,024. Total operating expenses for the Department of Corrections was $518 million, or $54 per offender per day. 90.5% of Indiana's offenders in our prisons are male, and 9.5% are female. The average adult age of intake into the Indiana prison system is 33.1 years old. 61.4% of all adult offenders in Indiana are Caucasian, 33.8% are African American, and 4.1% are Hispanic. The remaining small fraction is a mix of other races. Indiana's 2018 adult recidivism rate for people returning to prison within three years of the release date from a facility has dropped in recent years to 33.8%. But that's still one in three people returning to prison for committing new crimes. The challenge with statistics is we begin to see a prison population the size of Frankfurt, Indiana as a mass of numbers, and we no longer see the faces of individuals. We assign each one a number that basically replaces his or her name in the system. We don't know their stories, and we probably don't want to know these offenders' stories. We tend to believe that we're safer with bad people being locked up and being punished for their crimes, and that that's fair justice. Unless, of course, they're a friend, a loved one, or a family member. Then it's personal. Then we know their story and are a character in their story, and that makes all the difference. The real question is, how would their story change through their incarceration experience? Will they choose to correct their attitude and behavior and not return to crime? That's where Deborah Devines and her volunteers at the Indiana Prison Writers Workshop enter our story. They don't just see numbers. They see individual human beings with a story to tell. They believe that by helping each offender learn to express his or her emotions and creativity, that they can re-enter society with a better attitude and behavior through more reflective and effective communication. Pull up a chair and join Deborah and I in a crowded Tease Me Cafe on East 22nd Street in Indianapolis as she shares her story of founding the Indiana Prison Writers Workshop. You'll see that rehabilitation and reentry are not too big of problems for a fighter for underdogs like Deborah Devines. She's come to understand that these Hoosier outcasts are her people. Indiana 
Indiana Prison Writers Workshop came about after another volunteer opportunity. So I initially went in wanting to work with the offenders in some way and, and I led the victim impact class. And what I did during that time is I went off script and I said, I want to challenge you guys to write. Um, and so we wrote a letter to their victims. We didn't send it, that wasn't the intention. The intention was to get their minds flowing and get their thoughts out. And what I discovered in that room that day was that there was a lot of raw talent that needed to be discovered and, and they were rediscovering themselves in the depths of suffering and, and hope and, and they, they walked away feeling very relieved and I did too. And so that's how really this program initially started was just me going in doing something completely different and finding that the power of writing is transformative and so I emailed the volunteer coordinator the next day and I said, I've got an idea. What do you think? I said, let me uh, start a creative writing program at the facility. And she was supportive and all in. And so I had to go about creating a 12-week curriculum that got approved. That started kind of the path of it all. And, and that was September of, of 17 and things just moved quite fast after that. <laughs> so let's talk about Deborah's life before you found this mission. What were you like growing up? What was what were kind of your passions, etc.? So growing up, I always wanted to be a writer, a detective. I enjoyed crime. I moved around every couple years as a kid. My dad was a contract engineer, and so I was always uh, trying to blend in, and I always felt like I stood out. And so I really identified with struggling populations, people who felt like an outcast, because I struggled moving around every couple years to a new state, a new school. And so for me, writing became therapeutic. And I wanted to pass that on to other people to show them that it could be therapeutic and empowering as well to them. So you said something interesting to me, or intriguing to me, and that is you were always interested in crime. Tell me about that. What interested you about that? I think for me, it was very, at the time, very concrete, right? Someone commits a crime, you know, you get the police angle of it, you tell the story, you, you read the story or you tell the story as a crime reporter. But now it's a complete 180 for me because there's more to the story. There's uh, childhood trauma, there's addictions. I get emotional talking about it, but it's just, there's more to the story. What I'm hearing you say is you just were out collecting the facts, That's making right. the headline, right? If it bleeds, it leads. That's right, completely. But what you found was there's real people, real right. lives involved. Right. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even realize that it hadn't hit me like that, like it has, until I walked into an Indiana correctional facility and started working with this, these talented groups of, of men. Is that there is more. There's underlying causes, and you know, there's there's factors like poverty that has led to incarceration. And if we could just re rehabilitate and, and understand those causes and be more empathetic, you know, and realize that that these are men and women, and we want to to understand and be loving neighbors. So if you don't mind sharing, how old are you? I'm 45. Really? <laughs> I credit boxing, so I'm a boxer, and I, I spar twice a week at an Indianapolis boxing gym, and that, that keeps me young. Your background kind of step us through, because you, your career has been in communication as a reporter and some other things. Tell us how we got to where we are right now. Sure, so I went to college in California, and I majored in political science. I wanted to be a roaming reporter and, and travel the world to be an international correspondent. I interned at a TV station in Los Angeles. ABC7 and then really stayed in TV news for about a decade 
and then transitioned into nonprofit communications. And I worked with homeless veterans. I led communications here in town for the Hoosier Veterans Assistance Foundation. And really just always been in, in a communications type role. That kind of led me to where I'm at now. So you're a up and coming young professional, college educated reporter, boxer. How in the world did you ever find yourself walking into the Indiana Department of Corrections facility wanting to work with prisons? I took a leap. I knew I wanted to work with offenders. Having been a reporter, I wanted to do something. I wanted to help change perceptions and better society. I didn't know how, right? And so I walked in young, ready to go, what can I do? And it led to so much more. So it's amazing how a small step can lead to something so big. And that's what happened to me. Did I go out in, intending to create this program and build this program and then turning it into a not-for-profit? No. Was it a lot of hard work? Yes. Did it take lots of sacrifices? Yes. I mean, I quit my full-time job. I was working at a well-known pharmaceutical company in town, and this was, was calling me. And I knew I had to follow it, and, and I did. And it, it, it put a strain on our family. Of course, losing a full-time income does. But it was a leap, and I had to take it, and I had to follow it. Because in life, you only have one life. you got to take a shot at it. Tell me how that calling started to whisper to you. There's usually a process involved. You didn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'll go to the state prison. How did this start to really address that you're supposed to deal with this? I'd answer that two ways. I think for me, it was an education. It was a learning experience. So as I'm working with these men, I'm learning that 2.3 million people are incarcerated in the U.S. That's an alarming number. The U.S. has the longest history of racial inequality in the U.S., mass incarceration. And that struck me and that motivated me to continue doing what I was doing tied in with what we just talked about, being a reporter and just covering the story, but not really grasping the whole side of the story. So that's what motivated me. Another thing that kept me going, following this calling, was supporters. I mean, I had people message me, social media, say, you know, keep going, I, I like what you're doing. The story that you posted that an offender wrote really struck a chord with me. And so it was humanizing them, humanizing the experience and, and letting the world see, again, all the raw talent that, that's behind our prison walls. You know, those things really allowed me to believe in myself and give me a continued sense of purpose and that I was on the right track after making all of these sacrifices. And there were some bumps in the road and learning experiences but you know I think that failure is is just really part of life and you learn from it. But what grabbed your heart and said this is where I'm supposed to apply my gifts? The people. I mean stepping foot inside the facility and working with those men and getting to know them and they trusted me with their stories and they treated me like a family member. I mean they were divulging stuff in stories that they hadn't told anybody in some some instances. The trust the talent, those were the factors that tugged at my heartstrings. I mean, I, there were nights where I couldn't sleep knowing that this was heavy work and I'm not a case manager or social worker. And reading their stories and then storing those in my heart, they sat heavy, especially for the guys who were not getting out anytime soon or serving long sentences, some even life sentences. Those were always tough because I know that there is hope and I'm a big believer in second chances. However, you know, I do understand that they are in prison serving their time, but to know that some of these men would not be getting out was was hard. And to be able to arm them with a pen and paper and 
to say right and to give them some self-worth and to have them wake up every morning, that's what gets me up in the morning. What was it like the very first time walking in, hearing those doors close behind you, and now you're in an all-male facility and going to teach them about writing? So, a little nerve-wracking. I was slightly nervous. <laughs> I mean, as the, I, it was just me, and as the doors, like you said, closed behind me, the steel trap doors surrounded by barbed wire fences, the smell of unshowered men as they shuffle in. But what stuck with me, or struck me, was the smiles, the laughters, the friendliness the willingness to embrace as they did a volunteer coming in. Prison is somewhere where they're taught not to be vulnerable and not to let their guard down. They did it after a few weeks, after they got to know me a little bit better. So, so yeah, the environment was very harsh, right? Drab walls, but the men were, were ha the first group that I worked with were very happy and they were ready to put in the work. So we assigned them a writing prompt every week and they were they were there for a reason and they were appreciative of my time and, and so it made all the rest of the stuff, the jingle jangle of a guard's key, it just, it was background noise. So why don't you go ahead now and tell us a little bit about the mission of the workshop. Yeah, so the mission of Indiana Prison Writers Workshop is to create hope and give the men a platform for self-expression and creative writing. And it is to improve the lives of those incarcerated and previously incarcerated through creative writing and expression. Since its founding in 2018, we've taught over seven creative writing classes to more than 60 students in three state adult correctional facilities. Our themes include love, loss, hope. We bring in playwrights, poets, authors, we also expose them to great literary giants like Langston Hughes and Mark Twain. And so through their written work that we pass out, we're using our critical thinking skills too. So we're reading and digesting these pieces, these stories, these poems by literary greats. And we're talking about that time period and where we are now, where we've come from, you know, how far we've come since, the, since then and using our own life to be able to bring in ties to those those pieces. And students learn to tell their own stories through their own voices. A prison isn't necessarily thought of as a most creative space on the planet. How do you tie together that sense of finding hope through story for someone that's incarcerated? You know, I think I would answer that storytelling hits at human imperfection. I feel like the best stories that I've read have all evolved around some sort of struggle, right? To try to determine or walk through a sense of self, purpose. Why am I here? Why am I going through this? And I think it's as great as any place, even a perfect place. I mean, they have time on their hands. And why not use that time wisely, be reflective, be contemplative, use that time to think about how life will change for you post-release. As a writer herself, it seems only natural that Deborah Devines would create a book about her experience with the Indiana Prison Writers Workshop. And she did so. It's titled Sunday Sweet Sunday. It's an anthology of some of these amazing works of people who are incarcerated in the Indiana prison system. Deborah will share some of this amazing writing when we return to the Hopeful Hoosier podcast, recorded live at Tease Me Cafe in downtown Indianapolis after these. You're listening to the Hopeful Hoosier podcast, episode 10. The Hopeful Hoosier podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching and consulting firm. Visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com.
Storytelling is becoming a lost art, and so is the ability to choose a topic to talk about. Walk the Talk Speaker Series presents stories told by passionate speakers on topics that are timely yet timeless. For more information and to see our videos and hear our podcasts, please visit www.walkthetalkseries.com. Our mission is to create an epic shift in how people think. Well, hello, everybody. This is Harrison Painter. And Josh Bach. And we are the co-hosts of the Amplify Indie Podcast. The goal of the Amplify Indie Podcast is to truly bring together and amplify those ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We talk about events in the community, and we create opportunity for conversation to talk about possibilities. We're bringing together folks in the cause-driven world, the business world, and the people that we serve and we're building a stronger community. To find out more about us, go to AmplifyIndy.com or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. It's a lot of fun. Let's do this. Once again, my name is Harrison Painter. And I'm Josh Bach. Tune into the Amplify Indy podcast. Love Love it. it. So people tell me all the time that the voice of uh, your host here, Andy Dix, sounds remarkably like the president of AD Growth Advisors, who's also coincidentally named Andy Dix. Amazing how that happens. So this is a commercial for my executive coaching firm, AD Growth Advisors. And people ask me a lot of times, Andy, what is your definition of success? Because I help people try to accelerate their success. So here it goes. I will have achieved my level of success when I'm in my sweet spot. And what I mean by that is it's good work done well with your people who you belong with for people you care about done for the right reasons that matter most to you. Yeah, that's that's kind of a nice checklist I find. If you feel like maybe you're misfit for the role that you're in, let's talk about figuring out where's your sweet spot. That's just one of the ways we help people accelerate their success at AD Growth Advisors. If you'd like to schedule an appointment to talk about what's next for you, just please give me a call, 317-538-3231. Once again, 317-538-3231. Or visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. So hopefully you've had a chance to refresh your tea as we are at Tease Me Cafe in downtown Indianapolis, and we'll continue our conversation with Deborah Devines. I asked Deborah to share an excerpt from her book, Sunday Sweet Sunday. One of the offenders in class, a gentleman named Chris, I was telling him that it would be my last uh, group session. I said, I've got another volunteer who's great, and she's eager, and I think new energy will help the group, because I'd been working with them for a year. And he, he shared a short story in class about what Sundays meant to him, and he titled it Sunday Sweet Sunday. Sunday Sweet Sunday. Do you really think that you just make a day, or that you just uplift a week? or that your bi-monthly brightness just helps one or two to bypass the darkness from the shadows of steel bars? Do you really think that you've just made a year fly or that you've just turned mere dreaming into live streaming? Sunday sweet Sunday, your presence makes a difference and so does your absence and your passion has changed at least one life forever. That's amazing. When we hear that, 
and it's hard to put that into the context of someone who's incarcerated. Do we know what what his offense was, what he was convicted of? What I was, do. What yeah. was that? So his was an attempted murder. Okay. So he's got another few years. So we've got someone who was obviously forced to, or in his mind to make a choice about violence at some point. Right. And now he's making a choice about beauty into the world, right? right? right. How did that transition happen? What was, what was the growth? We'll use him as sort of the architect. What was the growth you witnessed working with him over the course of the program? Where did he start and how did he get to Sunday Sweet Sunday? So initially that year, he was processing and he was writing. I was receiving stories where he was trying to make sense of his childhood, of his neighborhood, of, of, of poverty. Growing up in a loving household, but still he felt like he had great responsibilities at such a young age as, as some kids do. The evolution that took place for him was realizing that we all have obstacles because he was in there hearing stories of other men and learning that it's okay, that there's more to him than his incarceration, that it didn't define him. And that's what I saw. So his stories evolved into more hopeful stories and more growth pieces. When they write their stories, how do they move beyond being their offender ID number to this person that's now the author? How, how, what's that mental transition like for them? They, they saw themselves as, as a DOC number. I just think creating this safe space for them enabled them to see themselves as more than that, as an artist. I think it was the space and the energy and the room, and that it's like that with all the facilities that we're in. The volunteer coordinators create this, this sort of space where they're, they're free to be themselves and or to be someone that they hope to be. What did he say when you show him the book for the first time? What was his reaction? So he ordered the book. So he had read it before I was able to come in and share the news and show the guys. Uh, he had read it and he just had a big smile on his face and he just said, wow. I mean, he was really spotlighted a good deal throughout this book because he had a big influence on me and my life. So he was thrilled. I mean, he was absolutely thrilled. I know his family was thrilled too and proud of him. This particular gentleman, Chris, was also in the news. A few of the news stations came in and showcased the guys. Chris, he's a shining star and we all can't wait until he's released so he can show the world what he's capable of. But yeah, he was just, he couldn't believe it. I, I talked about it. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write something about this experience because it means so much to me. And and I did. How about another favorite? Would you would you read something else? Sure, yeah. Okay, here's a piece by Chris called Remembrance. It leans on my soul, my memory. Fried chicken and collard greens clung to the curtains of the house like the women held on to the scars left by the men who long left. And in their wake, they left an invisible sight of smell, the kind that scratches at your mind like puke-colored carpet. There's a swinging lampshade in the front room that feels like money that was balled up in a jeans pocket, long forgotten. There's a pristine-looking love seat that hides the piss stains on the springs, left by a little boy who was lost in a dream. There are burnished bronze baby shoes with nameplates and pictures, and the lemon-pledge-scented wood reminds you that even the past must be wiped clean to be kept pure. There's a tanginess to the beads hanging from the doorway that are only meant to be felt and heard. And if the entrance of this brick castle in the ghetto could speak, each little creak of the wood floor under the rug would let you know that there's love here. That's amazing. I know, right? Wow. Powerful stuff. I know. 
So what story do you tell to help people understand the importance of what you're doing and the difference that you're trying to make? I tell them to find something that you're passionate about and go for it. And it could be something small. I mean, we all have purpose in this life, so why not run with it? And whatever that may be. Um, doesn't have to be a big bold move like I did by, by quitting my full-time job and, and running with the program, but you know, it could be going to your local uh, political office and seeing how you can engage and, and make a difference that way. I want to quote a Nigerian poet, Ben Akri. He says, rarely do we rise to the highest challenges in our lives. He also goes on to say, certainty has always been the enemy of art and creativity. And so I really took those two quotes and digested them and ran with them. I mean, why am I just settling when I have a calling? Why not pursue this and see where it leads? And then certainty, there was nothing certain about my endeavor. You know, I really went off on a limb and it's channeled all of this art and creativity and, and new connections and I haven't stopped since. I'm, continuing to move forward in that direction, knowing that there will be curveballs along the way and challenges along the way. So my guess is, while you're teaching these men about writing, they're also teaching you some things. What lessons have you learned because of the experience you've had? I've gained a greater sense of human resiliency, learning that resilience is a skill that's adaptable and uh, resilient people bounce back after setbacks and just seeing them try and work on themselves and hold on to a book that they bring into class you know with with such care it, it makes me re-examine my life and realize that I also have the ability to hone my skills in, in being resilient and that everything is fleeting. You know, life is, is adapt, being adaptable and, and change, as we know, is, is a big part of it. And so it just, you know, it, it, it gave me a different perspective and I appreciate small things and realizing that trauma and tragedy and, and everything can come knocking on anyone's doorstep. Apart from incarceration and, and, and committing a crime, bad things happen all the time and so to be able to be resilient and to keep pushing and to keep trying those are some of the things that I've walked away from. How has working with them impacted your personal writing? Yeah they really brought their a-game and like you heard from from Chris's piece they were as vulnerable as one could be and so it's up to my challenge and, and my game to be as vulnerable as I can be as well. I also have a greater appreciation for failure. Winston Churchill said success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm and they, they failed. They failed many times but we all do and it's a matter of, of getting back up, of picking back up. That's another element of how my writing has transformed because I write pieces where I'm like, this is garbage, this is no good, I'm tearing this up. And I said, you know, chalk it up to a learning experience, revisit the piece in another month, or just can it all together and keep going and try, try a different angle. And I've always been a persistent kid. Um, I think they've given me or shown me that Persistency does pay off, as does consistency. So if, if I'm hearing you right, would you agree that resilience is really what makes the story interesting? 
their stories. Yeah, and how you're how you're bouncing back from failures. Right. It's not the failure itself that's interesting. It's what do you do with it? Right. Exactly. How does that make your story interesting? Exactly. Right. Yeah. What do you think are some misunderstandings or beliefs that people have about working with offenders? that you'd like to, to maybe challenge for people? Uh, changing perceptions. They're hardworking, they're motivated, they've paid their debts to society. I think ideally I'd, I would love to challenge all of us to consider a, a hire an ex-offender type campaign, similar to the hire a veteran campaign in November of 2012. I think the goal should be uh, debunking employer misconceptions about the impact of incarceration. What do you think those perceptions or misperceptions are? That they're going to reoffend, that they're not going to show up for work. The statistics say that's what's going to happen. Yep, that's right. The Bureau of Justice Statistics reports year after year on the recidivism rates. Right. They're high. Mm -hmm. Anyone who is released after three years shown that 79% within six years will go back. 83% within nine years will go back. And recidivism rates in this country are extremely high, and that's because of all the doors that shut housing, employment, transportation issues. How are we providing these men opportunities if we're closing their doors? And what are they going to turn to if they don't have money to pay basic bills and to have the basic needs that, that we all do? What would you say to a prospective employer as they're considering do I take a chance on an offender? Of course you do, of course you do. Oftentimes they could be the better hire. Look at their skills, look what they're passionate about. They're eager, they're ready to work. You know, I think if rehabilitation is in the mix with certain programs that they're afforded inside Indiana Department of Correction, which are some great programs, you have the ability to repair the individual in some way. And so they're coming out and we're having better and safer communities because we've equipped them with skills that they need to, that will translate into great employees. So what's the biggest challenge that your organization faces at this moment? As any nonprofit funding, uh, we want to provide them with more short stories. We want to be able to share more materials with them so that they're better educated. Awareness of the organization. We have a Facebook page, Indiana Prison Writers Workshop, where we share stories. Encourage anybody to go onto our Facebook page and like us and, and continue to share. Funding and awareness, I think that's pretty typical of a small nonprofit. What do you think is the most exciting aspect of what you're doing? I think for me is jumping in and doing the work. It's not standing on the sidelines. It's sharing the work that the volunteer instructors are doing. They've since expanded their writing and reflecting on the opportunity that they've been given. So it's been very exciting to not only see the offender achieve transformation, but also the three volunteers who are in the facilities. So why should the average person care about your particular nonprofit and, and the writer's workshop? They should care because storytelling and writing is therapy. Writing can glue a shattered life back together into a functional piece again. So I believe that it, writing is making these offenders whole again. It's been giving them new meaning and purpose. They often share with me what the writing workshop has done in their life. Uh, I'd like to share one of those snippets with you. The thought that something I could write could have a positive impact on other people gives me a sense of a life purpose, a reason to get out of bed and get moving for another day. That was one. Writing is the only time I can acknowledge my own mishaps. I write not to correct my wrongs, not to pretty my past, not to be famous, but to reflect and let it be a reminder to do things in the right way 
and to live a good, fulfilling life. And so those are just some of the thoughts that are coming out from the students who participate. We soon hope to be working with ex-offenders through writing as well, so that could be something in the works. What do your critics say about what you're doing? That's been surprising. Uh, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why help them when they've done wrong? All of you should be safe, all of us, meaning the volunteer instructors. So I think those are a few of the sentiments from, from critics. And you know, it surprised me along the way who were the critics and who were not. And how do you answer those questions? Because those are seem like very well-intended questions to keep you and your volunteers safe. And so, so why I tell them we're, we're very responsible people. You know, I tell them that safety is always in the forefront of our mind. I tell them we're inside a correctional facility. I, I feel safe. The, the volunteer instructors I know have expressed that they feel safe. And I think it's just really all you can say about it. When you walk into the room and you see a room of 10, 15 people, they're all dressed in prison garb, khakis. How do you see past that to see the writer that wants to be in the room? And it just is, is in that uniform, but that's not who they are. I see everybody as an individual. I see through writing, I see their heart, and I see them in a different way. I, we all have the chance to overcome and to be someone different. That's part of growth. I just, you know, from day one when I did see them all in their khaki jumpsuits walk in and, you know, stare at me blank faced, eager to learn, I, I saw them more as individuals as a, instead of, of a group of men. And so, and they, they all, through their writing, immediately became very unique in their past and, and their thoughts. Very unique individuals with with traumas and, and things that they're trying to work through. What do you find the most energizing and satisfying about working with these folks? Believing in them when most people don't, seeing something in them, cheering for them, holding them accountable, because if you're not going to do your assignment, <laughs> you're not going to stay in the class, and watching them do their assignment and more. There were days when I gave them one writing prompt to work on, and they brought in five in the course of the week. I, I believe in them, and I wish that others would too. I'm assuming at some point during the class, everybody's sharing their work out loud and, and giving feedback. Prison's kind of normally thought of as uh, tough, and tough and gritty. Yeah. Right. How does that work? We start the class by saying, everybody be respectful. People are divulging their most intimate thoughts. Never would I want to put anyone in harm's way or for someone to feel like they've opened up a trauma and re-traumatizing an experience. We always tell them there are people that they can talk to at the facility. But inside the classroom, we also stress that we need to be respectful of someone's opinions and their past and their experiences. Not laugh, not talk, feel free to cry. Yeah, I think they, they knew the rules and they they knew that I was a volunteer coming in and giving of my time and you know the minute that they crossed the line in any way that I wouldn't be back and nobody ever did anything to make me second guess my decision to be there. So what do you think the role of hope plays in getting you involved and keeping you going in this? Now let me explain my definition of hope. I believe that hope is really about an expectation that something you believe is going to happen will happen. It's not a wish. When you are thinking about bringing hope 
into this place that most people are going to say is pretty hopeless, with people that most people would say could be hopeless. You were reading the writings of someone who was accused and convicted of attempted murder. One of the most heinous things that we as a civilization look at. How do you find hope that something good can come out of that person and out of this situation and ultimately end up being better in the world? I think every morning you need to have a reason to wake up, including people who have committed crimes. Hope, resources, and opportunity play a big factor. Without hope, a lot of times someone can be lost and harboring anger and resentment. And for that gentleman in particular, hope is whatever he wants to make of it. So it, it's change, it's making the best of his days and educating himself so he is ready to, to get out. And I have hope for myself. You know, I'm not one to say you shouldn't have hope because of your surroundings. Again, I think that plays on resiliency and being self-sufficient and everything could be taken away from anybody. And even though you don't have anything essentially in prison and you're surrounded by a bleak environment, you still have pride, you still have self-respect, you still have honesty, you still have trust, you still have family who comes to visit you. And you have programs. You have great programs by Indiana Department of Correction. You have writing outlets, you have art outlets. There should always be hope and, and a better day ahead for everybody. I mean, for me too, I have bad days and I chalk it up to tomorrow's gonna be a better day, I got hope. I got resources, I got opportunities. Talking about those bad days, no one ever starts a nonprofit without facing some significant adversity and challenges. Tell us about some of the significant challenges you've had to overcome and how did you do that? One challenge for me was pacing and knowing I can't do it all so fast, not abandoning my own family, spending quality time with them and not tipping the scale of, of balance because that can happen very quickly and there can be burnout for anyone that starts a small nonprofit and gets super passionate about it. I'm a one woman shop, so I do marketing, I do fundraising, all of that. And so that's been tricky. Another element of, of a challenge for me was I enjoy being in the facilities and doing the program work and leading the groups is to realize that I needed to step away and step back and have the volunteer instructors do that work and I promote the, them and their work and help them and be that supportive role for them. So that was hard, but it was a part of the journey for me and it's working better, uh, you know, to, to, to play this kind of backside role of support. As you really are taking on this leadership role, You've made something happen as a founder, now you're becoming a leader. What do you think are the key lessons you've learned as you've made that transition from founder facilitator now into leader? Right, I was thinking about that the other day. I think it's constantly reevaluating where the nonprofit is going, be intentional, having a strategic plan, knowing that things can shift, you know, whether along the way I'll hire uh, an executive director who can run the program and take it into uh, new heights or new direction would be beneficial. So for me, as the founder is listening to and understanding the, the board members that we have uh, as part of the organization is, is is learning ways to improve the organization. Because I never want it to be about me. I always want it to be about helping the offenders. One could argue that you are in fact living your dream that, that you've created. What about living out this dream brings out the best in you? 
I feel like I'm not going through the motions. I feel like every day is a different day. Every day is a new challenge. The landscape is so great to bring greater awareness and change in the criminal justice system to showcase these men as ready, able, talented people. I think that brings out the best in me. This renewed sense of purpose, this not, you know, driving in at 8 a.m. to a job that I do not like. It's being able to shape my future and shape the direction of, of where this thing is going. When you experience doubts, what are they and when do they hit? They hit at different times. I think my first doubt came about three to four months after really taking this thing full steam ahead. I, you know, I said, what am I doing? Why did I leave a comfortable, st stable life to embark on this? You know, I'm thinking to myself, I have zero supporters, no one. <laughs> why writing, why? You know, so you question a lot about, I question my decisions. And then, you know, things happen the, the next day where someone reaches out and says, I've got, my son is incarcerated, my daughter's incarcerated, your story has shown me something in a different light, and that's just powerful. Share with me what you think your personal definition of success would be. My definition of success would be when someone who has taken a workshop comes out and has more confidence, uh, has a better path ahead because he or she knows that they are worth it. Giving someone new life, allowing them to own their voice, struggles and all, imperfections and all. That's what success looks like to me, and it could just be one person that, that I've changed or that one of the other instructors' lives have changed. And it's impacting and changing lives. It's a mighty thing, it's a powerful thing, but it's amazing. And I've seen it already. We've witnessed it. We've wit witnessed people who have left and gone on to great things. You know, we, we hope we hope to to learn more about those stories and, and how they they've moved past the stigma of incarceration. And success also means to me taking certain hits and failures, but learning from them and being resilient and moving on, and, and knowing that we're all learning as we go. Do I know where this is going to be in five to ten years? I don't. Do I wish I could say yes? Yeah, sure. But I didn't know I would be here five years ago. So you're a boxer for fun. <laughs> I am. How do you stay in the ring yeah. and what lessons have you learned through boxing that you're taking to this nonprofit? A lot of lessons in life, in prison. You can take a lot of hits, but you have to keep getting back up and delivering those those blows and you know, and just keep getting back up once you've been knocked down so many times. There's so many parallels to boxing as in life. And I definitely see the connection with, with prison and feeling defeated and awful. I mean, there's been times where I've had uh, bruised eyelids, uh, bruised cheekbones, but I still go back because I know I'm strong and I know I can do it. I have a lot of self-worth and value in myself and confidence, you know? People can knock me down and I could be at my worst in the boxing ring and then the next day come back and make a comeback and do really well. And so I'm always training and I, I do plan to fight, to have an amateur fight uh, because I'm over 40. I'm limited to, to what fights I can be in. I can't be in golden gloves. You have to be younger than 40, but I do plan to, to take my sparring and fighting and all this training I'm doing every night to the next level at some point. What one piece of practical advice would you share with someone who maybe has a project in mind or a nonprofit in mind that they're thinking about, man, should I really take this on or not? What would you say? 
I would encourage everybody to, to follow their passions, even if it's doing something on a smaller scale. You, you don't have to go big. You don't have to quit your full-time job, but you can start small. You know, let, me, every, let me stop you real quick yes. there, though. Yeah. Because people give the advice to follow your passion. How did you know this was your passion? Something just felt different. It wasn't like I had taken up jewelry making, which is a passion, definitely, not of mine. <laughs> uh, it just, something felt different. It felt more long-term. It felt more, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. It's just a feeling. It's not something you can quantify. What challenge would you issue to someone who's maybe been trying to ignore that call that's been coming to them day in and day out in their life? I would say put a plan in place. You made a good point. Everybody says it's pretty generic when people say follow your passion, follow your dreams. I think for me, I, I felt it in my heart and you know, I, I kind of put together, this is what this would look like. Not a long-term kind of strategy, but if I pursued this, this is what I would do in the next three to five months to make this project viable and to get it off the ground. And so I think to have some sort of vision, even though it's a short-term vision, can move it to the next level, even if it's a small project or a bigger issue like incarceration or poverty or homelessness. We all have nonprofits in our area, and so it's identifying where your heart lies and what, what your calling is and, and maybe it's volunteering for a not-for-profit. Please send me a message at Indiana Prison Writers Workshop. You can find our contact information on our website if you're interested in making a difference. We always need volunteers, not necessarily for inside the facilities, but there's different projects that, that we could use. And so it's finding your niche, finding your, your drive. While the follow your passion is a very generic kind of overused type language, it's really just knowing yourself. Sure, this was a calling for me, but I had been almost primed to do this. At a young age, at age eight, I was writing and I was, I felt like an outcast, right? Moving around every three years. I was interested in crime. So I became a crime reporter, writing about crime. I had always been interested in the rest of the story and that's the offender, you know? I'm, I'm reporting on what the law enforcement officers are telling me, but what about the rest of the story? And from age seven, eight, here I am at age 45, pretty much doing what I set out to do at age eight. I mean, I had always wanted to be a detective, right? And a writer. and, and ingrained in learning about crime, what caused the crime, reading it, reporting it, and now I'm sharing those stories. And so it's amazing how things not only come full circle, but when you have people believing in you, building you up, sharing messages on social media, cheering you on, even the, the haters, right? It just motivates me to continue doing it and to continue to hopefully change their minds and their, their misconceptions. You know, there's a great mini-series on Netflix right now called uh, When They See Us about the, the, the Central Park jogger case and that's really opened my eyes. And I think when you find your calling, you start reading more about it, you start absorbing different angles of the cause and so that's when you know that you have arrived at that, you're, you're thinking about it all the time and you're, you're reading up on it. You know, I wasn't reading up on jewelry making, I was reading up on incarceration and mass incarceration and becoming a sponge, soaking it all in. That's when I knew this was life-changing for me. And I didn't want to die in my own life. I mean, there's, there's quotes that say, we die in life, and I didn't want to watch my life slip by. If I'm not doing this in five years, which I know, I'm pretty sure I will be, you know, it's, it's just, it's finding your thing. Would you favor us with another story from the book? 
Here's one titled Daddy's Little Princess by Phil. You're Daddy's Little Princess. Your light shines bright in the midst of my darkness. Your voice takes the pain away. Your laughter can run the rain away. You're such an angel. Your wings are made of gold. He sent you straight from heaven. Baby girl, you warm my soul. I miss you like the sky misses the sun at midnight, and that brings me joy, for the sun will kiss the sky again at sunrise, and I too shall kiss those chubby cheeks soon. You're my joy, you're my life, you're my love, you're daddy's little princess. What can you tell us about the, the author? So post-release with Phil, he was released uh, in October of 2018. He continued to write. Um, he was inundated with speaking engagements at conferences. Uh, he's been on radio shows, TV shows as well, and he has really uh, thrived and he credits uh, the writing program for weaning off his depression meds while incarcerated. But today, right now, he's successfully employed. He's reunited with his, his loved ones, uh, his girlfriend and his daughter, and so he is doing extremely well. And is he still writing? He is still writing, yep. Stories have a way of touching hearts mm -hmm. that programs and other things just can't get to, right? In numbers, numbers can't touch hearts. Statistics, you know, I can't sit here and recite how many people the program has touched, how many offenders have come in and out of the program at the other facilities where the other volunteers are. I can't, can't spew out those numbers, but I can tell you through stories that we've touched people and changed people and, and yeah stories touch. You're right. What do you think is the most important point for someone to take away from our conversation today? One point I hope people take away is changed perceptions of those tangled up in the criminal justice system, is knowing that there's some good to them. There's hardworking individuals who want to come out and better their lives and to embrace that and to honor that and to know that they've paid their, their debts to society by incarceration. So making that leap into society is going to be very difficult with the current situation, with the barriers, with housing and employment. And so I hope people have a, a better idea of, of the talent that's behind the walls. Um, and then another thing I hope people take away is that anyone could start something new at any age and to just not be scared, put fear aside. Because once you start on your path, the doors will open up where you least expected it. And that happened to me. If we fast forward, hopefully, many pages in your life story, write the last paragraph for me that would be the most satisfying way for your story to end. She believed in something. She believed in something. And what is that something in a nutshell for you that you that you really have? If you if you had to really boil it down to its essence, what's that sense that you believe in more than anything else? I believe in them. I believe in the prisoners. I believe in second chances and third chances. And I believe that rehabilitation is possible. So it's been a joy talking to you. And I can honestly say you are a hopeful Hoosier. Thank you for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to challenge you to answer the same question I asked Deborah and come up with an answer that you can live with. How do you want the last paragraph of your life's autobiography to read? I hope you're like Deborah Devines and live an epic story worth writing about. You can learn more about the Indiana Prison Writers Workshop on the web at inprisonwritersworkshop, all one word there, dot org. Special thanks to Tease Me Cafe at 104 East 22nd Street in Indianapolis for allowing us to record this episode there. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast, and I hope that you'll take a moment to post a favorable review on whatever platform you use to download. It helps us to spread our hopeful message to others. Our theme music is composed and performed by Indiana's author, therapist, speaker, teacher, and amazing musician, Mr. George Middleton. Until next episode, I'm your hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. Thank you for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.